it's a very interesting moment today. I, I had conversations about fiber uh, in, in the US, uh, my, me and, my, and our teams that, that we would have never had 15 years ago. So things are moving fast. Swanet. Welcome to the Swinet Podcast Roundtable. This is a new series of episodes created by the Swinet Podcast and Cargill where we'll have roundtables with experts of the global swine industry tackling subjects that can influence the producer's bottom line. Hello, everyone. I'm Laura Greiner, your host for today's Swine It podcast. And with me today, I have Dr. Mark DeCoe, who is the Senior Technical Lead for uh, Swine Nutrition at Cargill Animal Nutrition. How are you today, Mark? Very good, uh, Laura. Thanks. Um, Very good. How about you? I'm doing very well. Well, um, before we get started with our conversation, I'm going to have you do a little bit more of an introduction about yourself. So I'll let you give uh, the more formal background about who you are. All right. So um, I have been uh, working in um, animal nutrition for about uh, 25 years. And um, my background is um, um, agronomy engineering. And uh, then after a master of science at AgroParisTech, which is a, a French um, um, education school. I, I specialize in animal nutrition, and then I've been working um, in um, in that area all my career um, in different species, but most of it has been uh, swine. And um, I worked in different positions uh, that could be research management, it could be uh, technical support to producers, um, or, or even um, marketing and, um, and and sales. So it's been uh, it's quite a very interesting journey over the last 25 years. Cargill supports the podcast goal of helping pork producers improve their systems and business. Let's get back to the podcast. Well, and I think it's good, too, to talk a little bit about the position you have today. Um, as we were visiting, you talked about the fact that you work not only with the European um, producers, but you're also working with the United States producers and having some very interesting conversations, particularly about the differences in nutrition between the two countries. Um and it's something that we've all recognized for years in terms of how we feed our pigs and, and the, even the ingredients that we have available are definitely different. But the area that I really want to talk about today is, is focuses around sows and fiber and, you know, the information we know in Europe versus the U.S. and, and how do we bridge that gap? So I'm going to kind of start out with just the simple, can you communicate to us what you're seeing in terms of the differences between fiber use in Europe and what's being used today in, in America? Yes, it's uh, definitely the first uh, things that comes to mind when when we compare the two different types of nutrition. And uh, we do this a lot in Cargill. We have a lot of discussions about um, what is being used in different parts of the world. What can we learn from, from the different systems? So I would say... Um, fiber and the different fractions of fibers um, in Europe are considered today as important in terms of nutrients as amino acids or, or energy. So they, they are um, considered very highly in, in formulation, in, in formula specifications. And uh, if you think in terms 
let's start with a simple way of describing fiber, uh, NDF, let's say, uh, you're going to have very often um, NDF levels very high, but 20, 22% in some formulas, even higher than this, you're going to have minimums of fiber inclusions, including on certain ingredients, both in gestation feed and lactation feed. And uh, also related to this, because of this high use of fiber, um, very often the formulas will have a nutrient density and an energy density that is quite lower than uh, what we could see in the United States. And and so um, where in the United States you might see from times to times uh, beside of corn, soy and, and distillers, you might see with middlings and and um, you're going to see a lot more diversity of fiber and um, and, and also a grain that is particularly used in Europe is really a staple of uh, self-formulation, which is barley. It's 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 used almost everywhere. It's uh, so so there is uh, a big difference here, indeed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when you start talking to producers in the United States, what are some of their primary questions that that they come up with, and how to take the information from Europe and all of the knowledge that you all have generated in your research and put it into our barns here. So one question is uh, from uh, U.S. producers is what fiber sources they, they could use because um, most of the European experience and publications are with fiber sources that are not easy to find in the U.S. or that can be very expensive. And, and this cost might offset the benefits you would have with fiber. If, if you take, for example, barley or beet pulp, um, they are not as easily available as, as what you would have in, in Europe. And uh, another question is uh, how to formulate with fiber? What type of nutrients uh, should, should we use in formulation? Um, we, we first started to think that a constraint on NDF would be, would be enough, but we know that it's not enough. We, we know that, for instance, uh, corn distillers are very high in NDF, or you could have also uh, very undigestible fiber, very high in NDF. And uh, it's not going to be enough to provide um, all the benefits we need in fiber. So we have to use more sophisticated criteria. And today we have work on soluble versus insoluble fiber. We are also talking about fermentable fiber against structural fibers. And so we have these conversations about how to take that into account in formulation, because if we have um, a precise way to describe fiber by their properties in formulation, that gives us more flexibility. So we are not relying only on one ingredient, but we can be a little bit more flexible. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the biggest confusions I hear a lot is just, well, what's the difference between insoluble and soluble and fermentable? And, you know, we're talking NDF one minute and then we're talking a different form the next. And and I think that's where as nutritionists, it becomes frustrating because it's, it's easy to say this is the lysine level of an ingredient. Yes. And this is where we're at. And obviously different phases of production have different fiber needs too. And so um, how do you maybe break that down into simple terms for those that are maybe struggling with that? So, so it, it's, it's um, a very interesting question. And we, we do believe that uh, we need at least to separate the fiber in two groups. 
One is going to be fiber that are actually fermented uh, by the microbiota in the cells, and they are going to be turned into different nutrients, so especially volatile fatty acids. And, and when this is happening, there is different types of um, effects on the microbiota. There is also a supply of a certain type of energy, and it's going to have an impact on cell health and, and also on their behavior because it's going to change also um, how the energy is absorbed uh, by the cells. And then there is another group that are fibers that are sometimes called inert fiber that are not transformed into anything. They, they just uh, come out in a manure uh, as they are. So they would have more uh, structure mechanical effect. Also over time we've realized that they have much a much bigger diversity of effects. And this, this type of fiber, they're going to have different effects on cell transit, uh, intestinal transits. They're going to have effect on cell behavior as well. Um, and they have effect also on the microbiota. We, we, we think that could be because they are used uh, as a support by the microbiota. Uh, so the microbiota can grow uh, on it, uh, using it as a, as a physical structure. Uh, but that could be also they have effect on enzymes. And it's, it's quite difficult to understand because they are supposedly inert, but actually they are much more uh, active than without. And, uh, and there is a more and more interest also on these type of fibers. And so typically when we move from only looking at NDF to these two types of fiber in formulation, we're going to see uh, more consistent results on, on the cells themselves. Uh, so that really shows that you have these two different parts to, to control in, in formulation. Mm -hmm. Is it um, a ratio between the two, so fermentable versus inert, or is it, no, we need to have a minimum of this amount of fermentable and a minimum of this amount of inert? Yeah, it's, uh, it's also a very interesting question because very usually in most of, of the fish stuff we're using, the, the two fractions are, are present, unless we're using very purified type of fibers. And so... I, I don't know what would be the ratio, but we need a balance for sure. So if we only have uh, purely fermentable fiber, we may have a certain number of issues like bloating, for instance. If we, and if we have a lack of uh, structural fiber, uh, we, we might also have issues because of uh, transits, for instance. But if we only have structural fiber, we may also see uh, a change in cell behavior and uh, they're going to have a different way of, uh, of behaving during the day, uh, also with uh, hunger. And, uh, and uh, especially when we get close to parturition, it's clear that we need both types. The, the ratio is, is not that easy to describe, but we, we do have uh, specifications for the two types of uh, fiber. And, and uh, it's a range of values, basically. And... Um, I couldn't say it's a one-to-one -one ratio, for instance, but but you need both and it has to be balanced. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that we see changes in behavior if we use the inert versus the, the fermentable. What type of changes do you see? So if it, it's going also to depend on uh, over things. Like for instance, when we speak about structural fiber, the particle size is going to have an effect and or how many times a day the cells are fed. Um, but we, we see that when using fermentable fiber, typically what happens is there is a more uh, steady 
level of glucose in the blood along the day, because this is what we could call a slow energy type. And so cells uh, are going to have um, a more stable behavior and they won't have these highs and high and lows of sugars in the blood. And, and they, will, um, they will not be so nervous, for instance, after a couple of hours because they start to feel, uh, to feel hunger. Um, but on the other side, if, if we are using a certain type of structural fiber, that can swell with water and that can also affect gastric emptying. So, so we might also slow down the gastric emptying and that can also help to slow down the energy uh, release. However, uh, at some point, you really have a lack of glucose and, and so cells are going to, to start feeling hunger again. So it's, a, it's, a, it, it's clear that um, only providing, for instance, purely inert fiber without having some fermentation uh, might have an effect on cells uh, that, that could be uh, negative. Uh, another thing I, I would think might be due to the microbiota itself. So, so the microbiota needs some nutrients, so structural fiber will help, but they need some nutrients to grow. And, and that's uh, not having that kind of microbiota growing have an effect probably on, uh, for instance, the uh, intestinal efficiency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you bring up some really good points. Um, I can remember not that long ago being at a conference with Dr. Peter Thiel talking, and I remember he showed a beautiful slide on fiber. And in fact, I used that slide in some of my conversations about how it can, in fact, reduce parturition time and improve, you know, uh, stillborn percentages and so forth. And so I think uh, that's an excellent point about constant sugar glucose being available to the sow, um, particularly since we restrict feed or control feed her regularly. It's, it's true. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I agree. Uh, around, around parturition, for instance, it's well known and, um, and, and we can see that in, in farms where farmers are adding on top of uh, the standard feed, uh, pure beet pulp, for instance. Sometimes it's um, it's half and half um, when when they feel that the sows are going to need that type of slow energy to uh, to overcome the parturition at night, for instance. So so we've seen this type of um, uh, practices in in farms uh, for for many years, and um, the question is how can we scale this up and and have it included in complete diet, so we we don't have this manual work to do uh, for helping the sows. Yeah. Right. So how long before parturition would they start adding the beet pulp to the to the rations? So so typically it's going to be uh, two to three days. Uh, but, but, but so so that, that's the time uh, needed for uh, fiber to reach the hindgut and, and start being more fermented. Um, and of course, they, they don't exactly know when the sows are, are going to give birth. So so it's a rule of thumb, but it's um, it's roughly that yeah, two to three days before uh, parturition. Yeah. And, and that can be also um, in, in the early lactation as well. When, when that, that's another, uh, that's another uh, discovery around fiber, how they can help also in early lactation um, for, for all the reasons, but it's, uh, we've seen that too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I think that's interesting. Years ago, even here in the US, I can remember reading a paper from Dr. Gretchen Hill, where we talked about different fibrous products and how it improves milk production. And again, we understand, right? I don't think there's a, a lack of understanding in the United States that there's value, but you kind of hit the nail on the head early on was the investment and the return. 
And some of the things that you're communicating, like a change in behavior, isn't necessarily economically measurable, right? So how do we help producers kind of understand where those economics lie, right? Milk production, we have to weigh the pigs to see that, which in time we'll notice. But you know, can you kind of help me walk through how you help producers understand the investment and the return? It's uh, it's it's interesting, and and that that puts me sometimes in a in a weird situation because I'm I'm talking about the the experience from Europe, and and the questions we have is okay, where, where is the data? You know, sh show us the data, show us the return on investment, and if I I go back to the European producers, for them that that's an old story. They they don't want to go back to this. They they think okay, we we've seen it works, and that's what we do, but we we don't want to spend time in in trying that again. And and in fact, I, I think there is um, there is uh, a lot of uh, progress to expect from from the U.S. swine industry and, and science uh, on fiber. Uh, one particularity of Europe is that fiber sources are easily available; they are cheap, uh, while corn and soy are pretty expensive. Uh, that's linked to a lot of different things. Uh, the, the swine production areas are close to harbor or they are close to food industries. Um, so there is plenty of fiber available. And so economically, it's, it's never such a big problem to start using fiber. And um, another difference, of course, there are differences between countries in Europe, but most of the farms are family farms. They are also large integrators, of course, but a lot of uh, the, the work on fiber could be done partly by science, partly by really trials and errors by the farmers themselves. So they, they, with, with a farmer having a, a 500 or 1000 sows farm, they, they, they learn a lot. And, and there is this constant discussions with nutritionists and they can, taking a risk or taking a decision on fiber formulation in a 1,000 cell farm is not the same as a, as a 100,000 cell, cell unit so, or a system. So, so back to the, your question, I think uh, that is a very healthy discussion and, and that is also forcing us to look back at this and try to understand really what are the benefits. There is uh, different types of benefits, I think. The, the first one is going to be on health. So anything that uh, today uh, is causing uh, involunt involuntary culling of sows because of uh, prolapses, because of uh, lameness, or because of, um, of injuries uh, can usually be related to even uh, re um, returns uh, or long winning to estrus intervals, they are usually effects that we can relate to, to fiber. Um, and uh, MMAs also, we've seen some, some relations. So when we start working on fibers, one of the first thing I would look at are the health parameters of the saw herds and, and see how we can reduce cullings around that. A second point, of course, is going to be um, on, on the liters themselves. So you were mentioning uh, uh, parturitions, and, and we, there is a lot of work today on how using a high amount of certain fibers around parturition is going to improve uh, the survival rates of piglets. But uh, recent publications also uh, shown an effect on the average daily gain of the liters. And, uh, and, and you could even think of um, the health of the piglets themselves. And uh, the more we know about the micro 
microbiota of the sows and of the offsprings, the more we see how fiber is influencing it towards the microbiota that we know is, is in favor of the pea health and growth. And, and that will turn it at the end into more kilo of meat per stop a year. The, the, what I was saying is about where I'm very excited is that the, the U.S. pork industry has the capacity because of the very large size units there is to actually have the data that can prove this um, on a large scale, while it would be harder to, to redo this type of trials in, in Europe on, on large scale systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. That's, there's no doubt you can get data very quickly here in the United mm, States yeah. and, and have some very valuable information. And performance-wise, we have some very nice performing herds as well that I think would somewhat equate over to what's happening in Europe as, as well. Um, one of the things that kept kind of popping into my mind if I was sitting here and, and thinking as a producer is, okay, I'm sold, right? Fiber is great. Let's add it. What would be some current fiber sources in the United States that you would recommend? I mean, what and We know we have distillers and we know that's not really the type of fiber we're chasing. So you'd also mention wheat mids, but you know, in your time with Cargill and working back and forth, what are some more common fiber sources that you feel we have access to? Yep. Well, soybean hulls is um, soybean hulls are uh, really an interesting one um, in in combination with with middlings uh, because they are in in our view very rich in uh, fermentable fiber. So so they can be very interesting to balance this this supply of structural and fermentable fiber when combined with, with middlings or, or even distillers. And, um, and so that, that's, that would be uh, uh, really where to start, I think. And, and then depending on the states, and, and because there are going to be different type of food industries, different type of, um, of suppliers available, it, it might be possible to find certain types of fiber. Um, it's not going to be okay for the entire US territory, but in certain states, you might see some interesting fibers, even beet pulp um, in some case. However, uh, with, with soybean hulls and with middlings, there is already a lot to do, I think, and, and even in lactating sows. What kind of percent are we talking about if we think of an inclusion level in the diet? Um, I know we talked, we didn't really get into numbers for fermentable versus insoluble, but what kind of percent inclusion are you thinking we might need to use? So it can be extremely high. Uh, we, we've seen, for instance, uh, systems where we want to work with uh, ad libitum fed sows, for instance, uh, rearing gills, and they, we, we want to be sure that their, their uh, voluntary intake is under control, that they are not overeating. And we can have formulas with 30-40% of soybean hulls. And uh, on the other side, it's very common in, in our types of formulations, at least to, to see five to 10% of soybean hulls, um, even in lactating sows, which of course uh, raises the question of uh, how do I fulfill my requirements in, in net energy? Because I'm, I'm adding all this fiber and that might dilute the feed. And, and so I need to add more fat, which is uh, quite expensive. So, so there is also, of course, always coming up at some point, the question of uh, net energy and, and how, do we value, how do we value these fiber sources in net energy to be sure we are not uh, overspending money on that. Yeah. 
Right. That was my next question was how much energy credit are you giving, giving yeah. some of our fermentable fibers? Are they getting a different value than, than maybe what we've seen yes. in the past? Yes. And, and uh, I, I wouldn't be able by head to tell you uh, a related value against corn, but it's definitely um, higher in sows than in growth initial pigs. So, so in, in the, the nutrition system we're using, we, we have uh, different net energy values for different um, uh, production phase. And, and very typically in gestation and lactating sows, fiber values are going to be way more interesting in terms of net energy than in grower pigs and, and even more than, than in piglets. And that's a, that, that is, uh, every company would have their own systems, but I would say it's, it's also a common thing of uh, what we've seen in Europe. Uh, most of the formulation systems today have at least two systems. So one for sow and one for grower pigs. And that's what's helping also to um, to formulate with the high fiber diets, and and we've seen that if we if we use the net energy value for grower pigs in high fiber sow diets, we're going to see some signals that sows are overfed with energy, so they, they might they might get more fat than than what we expect, and uh, that that really tells something. We we are. Uh, uh, it, it's a, quite a common practice, I would say, to have these very specific energy values for fiber sources for sows, and, and it works pretty well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that's really kind of one of those points to bring home is that we don't do that here in the United States. And when we are running those diets and we're practicing those formulas to decide if it's cost effective, we are typically using um, growth finish numbers. I'm not saying everybody does, right? But a, a large number would probably do that because it's convenient. And we probably are leaving some money on the table because we're not giving it the appropriate credit. So um, I do appreciate that comment. Um, the other thing that I heard you say, and we'll talk about this briefly, is, is the developing gilt. So you mentioned in here um, that you're using fiber for developing gilts to hold gilts, right? So that they don't get uh, too overweight. But is there any other benefit to feeding fiber during gilt development that you've noted? Yeah, uh, we there are there have been publications showing that it also uh, increased their reproductive performance. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there are discussions around this, but it could be related to their insulin metabolism. Again, we, we spoke about glucose they, in relation to reproductive hormones, but there are publications showing that increasing uh, the supply of a certain type of fiber in developing yields will improve uh, their fertility rate uh, and, and their, um, their estrus in, uh, in the first um, uh, mating. Uh, there have been also uh, studies about how it helps to grow their intake capacity when, when it's going to be an issue, for instance. So that would be uh, more valid for their first gestation and, and how, how it can help them to increase their intake capacity in lactation. Uh, it could be because with bulky um, yeah, intake with the intake of the bulky type of feed is going to grow their stomach capacity. Pigs are very good at doing this, or or it could be again because of uh, volatile fatty acids produced out of fermentation, and that's going to make the the digestive system more efficient. So, um, but but it's it's definitely uh, used um, in developing yields, and and because very few farmers are actually 
um, capable of restricting these yields. And with the type of genetics there is today, which are fast-growing genetics, it's very hard to keep them uh, in check. They, they are using these strategies to, to try to control their ad libitum intake. Perfect. Well, we're kind of wrapping up on our time, uh, Mark. Are there any key points that you would like our audience to take home with them today? Yes, I, I think it's, uh, it's a very interesting moment today. I, I had conversations about fiber uh, in, in the US, uh, my, me and, my t- and our teams that, w- that we would have never had 15 years ago. So things are moving fast. And, and I'm very hopeful because, uh, as I was saying before, I, I think the, the, the U.S. pork industry has the capacity to produce um, an amount and a quality of data on this that, that was not possible uh, elsewhere. And, and that's going to help not only the swine industry, but everyone to, to get better at, at using fiber. Uh, so there is a lot of interest on this, and another, uh, and and so that's that's worth uh, working on it and producing the data that that we need, and that's what we are working on also at Cargill to to help producers taking decisions. Um, and another thing is uh, to indeed always consider the importance of the formulation system, because that's very important to provide this flexibility that producers need to use fiber. It's it's very hard. To, to be effective and, and flexible enough to use fiber if, if the formulation system is not um, accounting properly for the properties of this fiber, but also for the net energy that they are, they are providing to, to the pigs. And, uh, and I think we will keep discovering new uh, benefits of fiber, especially with the, the data that, that I know is, is, is now being produced out of the, the US systems. Mm-hmm. Perfect. It is time to our famous three. Well, one of the things we like to ask before we let you go is is really a couple of questions we ask all of our guest speakers. The first one would be, um, what swine resource do you recommend to our listeners? So it's it's one uh, particular resource I, I I was reading recently, uh, which is not exactly related to fiber. But somehow it's, it's about, um, it's actually a report that was produced by a group of uh, international researchers um, on summarizing the knowledge today there is on health and nutrition. Uh, it was published by the FAO in 2021. And there is really a, a broad group of persons who participated to that. And fiber is actually one of the key nutrients they are talking about. And what was quite interesting too is that Typically, when we speak about fiber, health, and nutrition, we think about piglets, but there is a, a whole chapter in this, um, in, in, in this paper on, on sows as well, and, and especially transition sows around parturition, and how, uh, when it comes to um, uh, improving the health of the animals while having a responsible use of antibiotics, actually, the work's being done around fiber and health in transition sows around parturition is also um, a, a very good way to, to, to work on this. So that was quite uh, interesting for me to see that so well articulated in the paper. Yeah, I have to definitely, I missed that paper. So I'll have to look at that one and, and read that section specifically. Um, how about something that's not related to pigs? Is there a book you're currently reading? Yes, actually, I'm reading it for a second time because I, I, I read it about four years ago. And it's a Why Simple Wins from uh, Lisa Bodel. And uh, I think it's uh, so important for me 
to read this type of books because uh, it reminds us that whatever we do, we, we need to to really be careful about not making things more complex than they are. And I think Fiverr is a very good uh, topic on, on that sense. And, and so, uh, especially as, as scientists, we, we like complexity. That's we, we thrive on complexity and 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 I, the hardest thing is to make it simple and and usable so it's um it's always a good reminder for me not to get uh, of, uh, ahead of myself and uh, remember that things can be simpler than than they are yeah, absolutely that's very good very good point right there um so how about uh, the last question we have is if you can think about somebody in your life that you define as successful what would be a key trait that they possess that you think's allowed them to be successful? I I think uh, I have several persons in mind, and and one of them has been my first mentor in uh, in my professional life. It's um, it's being very open and curious about um, human knowledge and this capacity that that especially I'm thinking about one person that that person had to be really exploring knowledge and and very curious about why people are doing things differently than I do and what can I learn from them and uh, I think in swine nutrition it's uh, it's very interesting to apply this concept and especially when we are discussing about the differences of approach between between Europe and and the US but but even if you are in Europe you wouldn't uh, see the same approach within European countries there is a lot of differences and a lot of discussions between European nutritionists on, on uh, things where they don't agree uh, between them for sure. And, and so every time you see these differences of experience and opinions, uh, this is where curiosity is triggered. And you want to understand why th there is this difference and what can we learn from it. And I, I've, I've been very excited by, by this type of approach and very inspired by, by this person. And, and I think today I, I see this more and more in swine nutrition. Uh, this openness from anywhere in the world to to really look at what the others are doing and 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 try to see how can we do this ourselves or what can we learn from it. It's uh, and and that's the same for the Europeans. They can learn also uh, from uh, from the U.S. market. We've seen that many times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. It's amazing the conversations we can have as well. We might all be competitors even within our own countries. There's a lot of information we're willing to share, and it's it's to advance our our understanding and improve you know what we're doing today. So I would agree, and I, I've heard curiosity a couple of times now actually from some of our guest speakers. So that seems to be one that stands out the most for some of our people to be successful is, is curiosity. So definitely, thank you for sharing that one. Our time today is is kind of come to an end. It's been a one wonderful conversation. I've enjoyed visiting with you. Um, for our audience, again, uh, if you missed the beginning, this is Dr. Mark Deku, and he is uh, with Cargill Animal Nutrition. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Laura. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.